You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know, the Washington Post, their tagline is democracy dies in darkness. And if you kind of take that as a starting point, I, I asked, well, how do we explain then that it was born in darkness? We live here in a convent. We converse with only one another. So said Benjamin Rush, a member of the Continental Congress in 1777, when that body was moved from Philadelphia to Baltimore during the war. We are precluded from all opportunities of feeling the pulse of the public upon our measures. Indeed, the Capitol was moved for two months to the city of Baltimore, to the Henry Fight House, uh, located on what was then Market Street, now West Baltimore Street in Baltimore, from December 1776 to the end of February 1777. They met in an inn, a tavern, built red brick building with white wood trim, about 14 rooms, big enough to house the Congress, far enough away from the harbor and the nearby Patapsco River, so they didn't have to worry about being shelled by British naval ships. But that very security of having the capital in Baltimore now led to the feeling that Dr. Benjamin Rush was talking about, that they also felt isolated. Like, how are we going to know what people in Pennsylvania are thinking about, or in New York, when we're stuck here in Baltimore? And nonetheless, they conducted their business. They made decisions such as appointing George Washington, the commander-in-chief of all armies, increasing the power and effectiveness that he had as a general. But they did it entirely in secret. Openness and transparency appear to be parts of the normal functioning of American government. But as our guest today will get into detail on, they're not necessarily part of the beginnings of American government at all. One of the first things that the Continental Congress does when they meet in the spring of 1775 is to retain secrecy. Continental Congress is not meeting in a place that's open to the public. And only parts of their journals will be published, usually published late. Members are instructed not to discuss matters with other people. And secret committees were created to oversee classified actions, say, treating with France, or trying to acquire gunpowder from foreign sources. John Adams will write to his friend and fellow revolutionary James Warren that our obligations of secrecy are so braced up that I must deny myself the pleasure of writing particulars. He said it even to his wife Abigail. He apologized for not being able to convey substantive news to her, warned her to be careful with anything he had sent. My letters have been and will be nothing but trifles. I don't choose to trust the post. I'm afraid to trust private travelers. They may peep. Accidents may happen. The Continental Congress is the predecessor directly of the U.S. Congress, and it met in secret. It wasn't unnoticed. A critic of the Continental Congress early on, Samuel Seabury, writing as a farmer in 1775, says, Much stress has been laid, it seems, upon the unanimity of the delegates, and it's been urged that all the inhabitants of the continent 
should think themselves in honor obliged to abide passively by their decisions, be they what they may, because they're their representatives. Well, ha! It is now pretty generally understood an undoubted fact that most of our New York members did not agree with the multiple decisions of the Continental Congress, but yet they unhappily agreed before their entrance to any business that neither protest nor dissent should appear in the minutes before they even have a full year of being a Congress. Seabury is calling them out for not being public. It's not so much a problem in the beginning, though, because there's a lot of support for what the Continental Association and Congress is doing, you know, when they march to Philadelphia, they're getting cheered. This is after the Lexington and Concord. They're getting cheered and they're receiving petitions from local committees, conveying support for what they're doing. The public support for what they're doing is obvious. But later, as the war continues, and this body is running a war across a continent, and they're having to move to different places, Baltimore, York, Lancaster, and back and forth from Philadelphia at different times. They're not always feeling connected to the pulse of members. Like how do we how do we know what the people at home are thinking? John Adams writes to another friend, "It would be a relief to my mind if I could write freely to you concerning the sentiments, principles, facts and arguments which which are laid before us in Congress." He is among many members of that Congress that felt that it would be a great thing theoretically if his friends and if the American people could see the actual proceedings of Congress would know that they weren't doing anything that was menacing or anything like that. But they also feared that many of these materials could either be used by the enemy or misinterpreted. Richard Henry Lee writes to a friend about the damage that a few scribblers can do by picking out one little part of what they said in a discussion. By the end of the war, in the Pennsylvania Gazette, Americanus complained, Congress was stalling the peace negotiations and continuing the blood and sacrifice of blood and treasure of the war. And that only if the congressional activities could be exposed to the public and the measures that they have so fatally pursued be condemned, that we could see this dangerous faction at work within the Congress that wanted to prolong the war, the journals of Congress and the A's and No's should be published, and the doors of the House should be thrown open. Leonidas, in the Pennsylvania packet, also lamented the state of continental money, inflation. He emphasizes, the people are the masters, Congress are our servants. Let us read something more than the yeas and nays and questions for recommitting and postponing business, which appear in the minutes of your journals. There were, there were proposals to publicize more matters of Congress, and most of them didn't meet much success. The attitude seems to be well expressed by a letter of Washington to Knox, to Henry Knox. And this will be after the war. This will be right before the Constitutional Convention takes place. Washington says in 1787, the problem with the existing Confederation government is we find it not only slow, debilitated, and liable to be thwarted by every breath, but it's defective in that secrecy, which for the accomplishment of many of the most important national purposes is indispensable and necessary. So you see in this the the attitude that 
democracy and secrecy don't seem to be connected, but it might be vital. And that's a topic that's been explored by Dr. Caitlin Carter of Notre Dame, and she's um, written a book, Democracy in Darkness. And we're going to talk about that right now. We're here with Dr. Caitlin Carter of Notre Dame University, and her book is Democracy in Darkness. And Dr. Carter, I wanted to start with that because I think the title says a lot. It, it, we always, the, the phrase going around, has been going around the past couple of years, is that democracy dies in darkness. Uh, yeah, so my book kind of takes off from that premise. Um, you know, the Washington Post, their tagline is democracy dies in darkness. And if you kind of take that as a starting point, I, I asked, well, how do we explain then that it was born in darkness? Uh, the Constitutional Convention was conducted entirely behind closed doors under oath of secrecy, you know, the creating the document that uh, founded our democracy. Um, so yeah, my book kind of looks at that um, paradox and tries to, to make sense of that. And I think in doing so, it shows something about the very meaning of democracy and um, how the, the meaning of that kind of changed in the 18th century when the United States was founded. It interested me because um, it was back in 2013. So this is a while back, right when the Obama administration was starting some of the, or the investigations were coming out about some of the metadata searching of of cell phones of people. Mm -hmm. And so uh, myself, Dan Carlin, who's a big history podcaster, Chris Novembrino, just a bunch of podcasters did a little special episode. And I remember the question coming up and they were like, what do you think George Washington would think of all this secrecy that's <laughs> going on? And I was like, my God, man, he's the one that sealed the windows. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to know what George Washington would think about, you know, large scale surveillance. Um, that's not necessarily something that he was engaged in in the 18th century. But uh, you're right. I mean, he was presiding over the Constitutional Convention, which decided as a group to yeah, seal their windows, put guards outside, keep their doors shut, despite it being a very hot summer. And they did that because they saw utility to conducting deliberations um, out of public view. Um, they felt that that had benefits. And and Washington, you know, actually throughout his presidency continued to kind of strategically use um, secrecy, privacy um, to form policy and, and conduct his work um, as the executive. Just to get a, a perspective on how severe it was. So it was um, the members of the Constitutional Convention debating what's going to be the governing document, the one that we use today. Um, windows sealed, sentries at the door, everything said had to be kept secret and any called the memos or anything written had to be safe kept by the members of the constitutional convention while they're debating now there's a lot of people i'm sure at the time and if any kind of constitutional convention happened today i'm sure people would insist that they get in the room probably probably via webcam, the, the sense of the 18th century transparency seemed to be, well, you have every right to see our finished document, but uh, gentlemen, you, you cannot expect us to expose ourselves to all of our deliberations and arguments. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the framers who were in the room did have 
precisely that mindset. And I mean, they're coming at it thinking about uh, what is kind of normal practice at that mm -hmm. point in the 18th century. I mean, most legislative bodies did um, frequently meet behind closed doors. So it's only right uh, before this, like in the 1770s, that the House of Commons, for example, they let in reporters um, and start to allow them to publish uh, records of their deliberations. And they do that, you know, very begrudgingly. They, they're not happy about that. Um, and then you have some states and their constitutions, they've started to do this in their state assemblies. So these things are kind of changing at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and the framers seem to be aware of that. I mean, they address this uh, in the Constitution, requiring um, Congress to publish its journals from time to time. So there's kind of an awareness that this is changing. But yeah, the, the most of the framers who are in the room really retain this sense that um, deliberations are best conducted outside public view. Um, to promote a sense of um, the the delegates uh, kind of making the wisest policy uh, that they believe that that's going to be possible if they're not facing constant scrutiny, influence, or pressure from outside forces or their constituencies that that they better come in the room, hash things out. Um, you know, doing that they can cut compromises, they can change their minds, um, and that there's this belief that that's going to result in a better um, in this case, constitution, um, a better policy. I guess I'm bringing up the Constitutional Convention, but really that starts with instructions from the Continental Congress or the Confederation Congress at that point, but which is an outgrowth of the Continental Congress. And is mm -hmm. could you talk a bit about the Continental Congress and, and secrecy? Yeah, so the Continental and then the Confederation Congress, even after the war, they also meet behind closed doors um, and in secrecy. And they do publish their journals, but the journals mm -hmm. are pretty sparse in terms of what they record. You know, it's, Is it it's like not my like... co-op board's minutes of their meeting? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yes. Yeah, it's not giving you it's not giving you a verbatim account of, you know, so and so mm -hmm. said this and then so and so said this. Um, it's really just telling you, OK, a vote was taken on this. This was passed, that kind of thing. And during the war, for example, they get very behind on publishing those journals too. And that's partly just because there, there are shortages, like there's a lack of paper and ink, <laughs> um, you know, during the war to actually print these things. Um, and also there's a shortage of manpower, um, partly because they are really dedicated to maintaining secrecy. So they have kind of a limited group that they will expose the rough notes you know, mm -hmm. too, in order to produce these journals. And they just don't have enough manpower to, to do it that quickly. So there's actually an incident I talk about in the book. Um, in 1777, the Virginia delegates, you know, they send the journal, the latest journal back to their uh, governor. And that journal is from December of 1775. So the journal they're oh. sending is actually from before uh, independence was even declared. Um, and they sort of, you know, apologize and say, you know, this is the latest one we have. We're hoping that they, these are going to get done faster. But yeah, so there's there's not a lot of publicity um, about what's going on in Congress. Yeah, you talk about uh, some of the activities of Charles Thompson, the secretary of Congress, known probably for most people just as being that name next to John Hancock. Some of his activities in terms of the journals of the Continental Congress and then the secret journals or the 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 excerpts of the the Continental Congress, which were a lot of work. So the secrecy turned out to be it's actually a lot of work to decide what not to publish, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, it is a lot of work. He's keeping multiple different versions of, you know, the notes. So yeah, there's the official journals, there's the rough notes, which he's working from, and then there's the secret journals, right? So yeah, it is a process constantly of separating, you know, what's going to go where. Um, and, and that's an ongoing and pretty labor intensive process, as you point out. The the interesting thing in, in my own state in New Jersey, there is a big debate going on because we've had an open public records act for for quite a while and a lot of states have this but mm -hmm. um there's been numerous um complaints about it and there's legislation up right now to reform it um not eliminate it but reform it because mm -hmm. uh, for instance uh if someone makes a lot of requests one particular individual or group um, a target, for instance, is the New Jersey Libertarian Party, which doesn't have much chance of winning an election, at least so far, but makes an outsized amount of requests of all of these towns. And New Jersey has 600 towns. It's just the way we're set up. And uh, mm -hmm. I was in a rare position to see both sides of it because I about 10 years ago, I was a town councilman. On the other hand, I, you know, I, I'm like anybody else. I kind of think open records is like a good thing. See both sides of that question because our clerk in our town would tell us about the requests that would come in and they're spending all their time and behind in the requests and the law has fines for the town the taxpayers will have to eat. The legal fees could be paid for um, in the current law. In New Jersey, legal fees are paid for by the offending parties. So that's one of the things they want to change. This is a little bit of a ramble, but it, but it, I really felt in a real way that tension between us. Like, wait a second, I'm one of six people elected by this town to mm -hmm. actually run this town, and we get people showing up in our meetings, you know, and and yelling at us, and that's part of the that has to happen and everything, and requesting all sorts of documents about our deliberations and stuff. Nobody elected them to any. They don't. They call themselves the people when they get up and speak, and that happened quite a bit. You're mm -hmm. not listening to the people. But wait a second, you're not elected to a thing. And if you were, you'd get 30 votes. Yet there were an outside amount of the request, both of paper requests and also of microphone requests, because we also mm -hmm. had public meetings and anyone could get up and talk at, at length. And you had to start imposing some limits on that, too. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, you can't can't speak for more than five minutes. You have to be from the town or we have to put you at the end. Can't speak twice in one meeting. These all started to be things that you, but you see this tension um, because at the same time, if I'm too harsh with that, then then the question is, I'm no longer running a town in the name of the people anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I, you know, going into the book, I would say, I also had this default assumption that the more transparency, the better, right? Um, mm -hmm. That it it promotes democracy. And um, I came out of it thinking well, it is a lot more complicated than that and nuanced. And just like you said, a lot of these questions we're still dealing with today. And I mean, you know, you've actually held elected office. I mean, a lot of what motivated me in starting to write this book was thinking about elected officials and how do they think about their role in representing the people? Um what is the balance, you know, that they think they they should strike between, you know, um, actually trying to listen to as many constituents mm -hmm. as possible, 
um, versus, you know, doing what they actually they think is best by evaluating the situation with information that they have that, you know, the broader public might not have, for example. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. And there's kind of like a, a danger on either end, you know, um, you could have, yes. and, I, and I talk about this in the book, like in the early French Revolution, they really go all in on transparency. And there's some challenges with that, because as you know, what that tends to mean is that the the group with the loudest voices or who are closest to the political assembly, you know, they are claiming to be the voice of the people to be public opinion. Mm -hmm. And that really undermines the legitimacy of these elected officials, um, which, as you know, you know, you could say they have a better claim on being the voice of the people as they're elected by the broader population. So it can kind of have that effect. But then on the other end, yeah, if you go too far the other way and kind of shut people out and, and use secrecy too much, it can really become power concentrated in the hands of a few um, who, you know, though elected, are also being restrictive in terms of, you know, channeling that voice of the people coming just through them. And, and that can also really shut a lot of the public out, especially if we're talking about the case of, you know, early America, for example, where women are not allowed to vote in most cases, um, you know, a black men, for example, not allowed to vote in most cases. Um, and so then, you know, if you're working in secrecy, it's sort of, it's a very restricted, it can be a very restricted sense of who are the people who are being represented. The one that really strikes me it's one of the assemblies of the French Revolution after, uh, and I'm not sure whether it's after the, the the king's death or not, but it's one of the deliberative bodies of the French Revolution. And there's a member who says, shall we uh, remove the strangers from our presence and mm -hmm. we can start to do our business? And another member says, by God, man, I mean, have you forgotten who you are? and who you're representing they are not strangers and i just think about it yet yes i have that benefit of having you know although it's 10 years ago having a little experience with that sort of thing and it's like oh often the people that would show up at meetings they would be not representatives of the people by any means yeah. they would be uh the the loudest voices the the sometimes uh, frankly the the craziest you know, I, I also believe that the French did things differently than Americans did. Yeah, they definitely did. And the book kind of gets into the significance of those differences, even in things that we might consider small, like procedural decisions about where an audience can sit in a meeting or, you know, whether to have reporters inside a meeting. So I argue that those had big consequences for how people understood and thought about the government. Um, but yeah, the anecdote that you just uh, mentioned about um, this deputy suggesting that they expel strangers and then, you know, someone, another deputy coming back and saying, you oh, that's preposterous, basically, that, you know, um, you represent them, so you owe them an account of all your actions, your thoughts, even, he says, you know, it's, it's normal that they would want to be here, we should absolutely have them here. You know, that happens very early on, that's in 1789, um, as the revolution is just breaking out, but the same kind of question keeps coming up throughout the the decade um after that and and just a few years later you have a deputy kind of raised the point a point that you were making too about um he says well you know what's to say that all this audience these people who are here in our meetings that's not really the public those are just mm -hmm. the people who are in paris who can come to this meeting and he says what about the people back home in my province 
you know, they're also the public. Uh, they can't be here in this meeting. So maybe we should, he even suggests at that point that they should create a ticketing system where there's sort of like quotas of space for different provinces and the, mm -hmm. the deputies can kind of give those out. And um, he's shot down also. <laughs> and, you know, people are like, no, 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 then it would just create a preferential system and deputies would pack the stands with, you know, who they wanted. Um, which is kind of already happening anyway, even without this kind of ticketing system. But yeah, that kind of tension in that point, um, you see that get raised repeatedly um, in the French context, but you also see that in the American context once Congress gets um, set up under the new federal government and in the House, at least they start letting in um, an audience and reporters uh, right away. And you start seeing these same questions come up there too. Locating the Capitol initially in Philadelphia um, there are many members, particularly Southern members, but people comment that Philadelphia had an influence. Quaker, heavily Quaker okay. area, had an influence on the entire federal government that maybe okay. outsized what that population was in the whole continent. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, When they're talking about where to locate the capital, there are a lot of these kind of concerns. And a point I make in the book is that you know, they're also thinking about experiences that the Continental Congress had at points being kind of forced out of Philadelphia, whether it be due to the British and, and war. But also at one point they moved to Princeton because they're, you know, mutinying soldiers who want to be paid and they don't want that kind of pressure on the Congress when they move um, to Princeton. Um, and so they have those kind of recollections, but they're also very aware of what's happening in France, um, you know, at the time that they are making these decisions about where mm -hmm. to locate the capital in the US. And they're seeing, you know, crowd actions invading these assemblies in Paris. And those those things are worrying to people. So there are a lot of, um, you know, people who are saying, we need to put the capital outside of any city. Um, where it's not as vulnerable to this kind of crowd actions or the political pressures and biases of a, you know, a particular urban environment. And of course, not everyone's on board with this. You know, like today, you have the other side of mm -hmm. this argument that's mm -hmm. getting made too, where there are people really resistant to that saying, well, if you do remove the capital and you put it in this isolated space, that's just going to, you know, allow the government to run amok, right? It's going to put it out of sight of the people and, and out of reach of people um, to be able to exercise vigilance over it or, you know, exert any influence. So these are not settled questions. You know, they're very much live debates at the time that people are having. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it certainly moving to Washington, D.C., I mean, for a lot of America, it's like you can't get there from here. Not very great roads. Um, yeah. It's a very wooded area, very muddy area, mm-hmm. hard place to get to, spend a lot mm-hmm. of time, nowhere to stay. Uh, so they obviously yeah, did end up moving the capital to, to a place that was harder to get, but also removed some of the uh, perhaps oversized influence of one city um and and you go into a lot of detail um about that and there's a lot of discussion about where i mean you, know, you could have had uh new york you could have had uh, had new york for a short time you could have had trenton the the question that we run into a lot today is republic versus democracy it's tied up in this question of secrecy and representation and how much of my business is say a congressman or a, a representative do you get to be involved in as one of my constituents is it just write me a letter talk to my staff or is it you get to really review everything and mm-hmm. um and get constant contact and consultation with me and i i suspect that most legislators i know my people in new jersey my state center assemblymen they probably play a little bit of both you know it's like well i of course as a person i try to be as open as possible but you know, you'll see me walking around. I go to events. You can talk to me. But when it comes to you know you as one person or even ten people thinking I'm going to vote your way just because you yell and scream a lot, you know, then 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 it's it's um, we're in another place. But you see in the debates a lot: republic versus democracy. And nine times out of ten, I'm seeing it in more of a republic favored position. In other words. It's used to shut down, say, discussions of gerrymandering or state legislatures acting in a certain way when they don't have a popular vote always, or um, the Senate and the lineup of the Senate in our Constitution, where you know Wyoming has the same representation as um, California, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of people, you know, wide variance in people. DC has no representation, at least in the Senate with almost which a larger population than Wyoming. And the answer will be that Republic versus democracy. So like we have a Republic where you, you vote representatives and they make decisions. It's not you directly bandaid on the question almost as an answer is, you know, uh, well, Republic is a form of democracy and you take it from there. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I know it's kind of a general question, but. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that often that that gets raised um, in politics to kind of justify um, 
systems or structures or actions that are um, either perceived as or or are anti-democratic or or undemocratic. Um, and I, a lot of times, I think those people point back to the founders and say, "Well, see, the founders they didn't like democracy actually, and you know they were mm-hmm. trying to construct something that was not a democracy." And that's a bit simplistic. You know, it's it's easy to do that because when the founders are talking about democracy, they mean it in a very different sense than we mean it today. I mean, they're they're talking about democracy in an ancient form, like uh, in a Greek city-state where everyone participates, or as one kind of um, branch in a government with multiple, you know, like a, you know, monarchic, aristocratic, Mm -hmm. and democracy. So they're kind of thinking about it in that sense. And actually, you know, what happens with the founding of the United States is there is kind of an effort to change the very meaning of democracy and to kind of um, bring it in line with their ideas about what a republic is. And, uh, you know, part of the way that they do that, actually, I argue in the book is by using secrecy, um, you know, strategically at the beginning to kind of say, well, no, democracy, it's not, it does not actually mean direct participation in government. Um, and we can have this thing called a representative democracy, which is actually a term that itself gets used first um, in the early United States um, and, in, and in the French Revolution, this time period. Um, and today, we tend to think about that as, well, of course, that's what democracy is. Democracy is a representative government. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that's kind of mm-hmm. how we use that term. So, you know, if we go back and look at how those distinctions, you know, what those meant to people in the 18th century, how they got kind of blended and redefined, I I often think the way that that gets used today is it's kind of disingenuous um, and it gets kind of used to just dismiss uh, a lot of structural um, things that we view as undemocratic to say, well, yeah, it is because it's a republic and it's intentionally so. And I, I think it's, you know, it's a lot more complicated. Than it's that. it's rarely extending a conversation, I've noticed. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's really <not>. extending. <laughs> it's not that the person wants to engage in a large conversation about republic. It's, it's kind right. of like it's a republic shut up. Um, and I've had those discussions and I, I you know, I, I even can lean on the republican republic side a bit but i still have those discussions and and uh if you take the examples we've talked about for instance just the difference between the constitutional convention and washington and the 50 odd 55 or whatever people there highly unrepresentative a vote by states so very gerrymandered and delaware getting a vote new york getting a vote not a not at all people elected to go to that convention as it probably would be if it ever happened now just voting by states and then the ratification conventions which are more democratic at least you had to you know run for those seats and it was a larger group so right there in each state so right there it's a little more democratic and the difference of opinion between those bodies and of course the big miss in philadelphia is not including a bill of rights um yeah that that definitely comes out of the ratifying debates and and actually once the constitution is published and put out for the public to consider um in the ratification debates you do have a lot of critics who come up and point out the secrecy of the convention as a cause Mm -hmm. for concern and, and use that to say well this is not a document in the name of the people um, you formed it behind closed doors. You didn't um, consult the people. 
Um, and moreover, then you put out this document and you tell them they have to just say yes or no. They, they, they can't actually offer amendments. Now, some of the conventions do submit you know, lists of amendments they would recommend, but they can't make their ratification conditional on that. So they, they really have to take it or leave it um, through the process. And a lot of uh, critics of the Constitution are very upset about that and feel that that's a very, um, I mean, to them, they wouldn't call it an undemocratic process. At the time, mm -hmm. they would say it's not a representative process um, in the sense that they understand that and like how representation should work. So there's a lot of criticism of that. Um, but you're right, the, the Bill of Rights then, you know, comes a, as a result of that de more democratic piece of this process. I always think the amendments process is, is one of them that in the day it probably seemed okay little restrictive but okay three-fourths of those original states is a, is more doable than three-fourths of of uh 50. it's oh, sure. just a yeah. simple math uh human politics equation that things that have to happen even if you're wildly organized we've had so few amendments and some of them are very for very small matters it's hard to say maybe if now let's say the process was open at the constitutional convention they would have been i think very limited in say the powers of the president and if these people wanted a political career after that convention to go out and say you wanted like a, a king-like president might have been mm. a problem in a lot of places federal supremacy may not have passed muster. You talk about in the book that there's one amendment, they're debating the First Amendment in 1789. There's a representative, Tucker, who wants to add the phrase to instruct their representatives. So just say you have freedom of the press, you have the, the, the right to redress government, you have the right to uh, free association, but you also have the right to instruct their representatives. And mm -hmm. he proposes that there's opposition and people are like, well, if they have the right to instruct their representatives, the, the logic would be you're, you're not supposed to turn a blind ear to that. Yeah, you I mean, better I mean, listen, right? <laughs> yeah, you better listen, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's actually dropped from the, uh, at least in the, from the debate in Congress. Yeah, yeah. Um, I talk about that as something that they don't put in. And I think that it's, um, you know, that that's not a minor detail that actually mm -hmm. really speaks to uh, the way that a lot of these politicians thought about what it meant to be a representative, which was more in this, I call it an insulated sense, more of this sense of, you know, okay, you're elected. And then once you go, you are to make decisions in the best interest of the people based on what you believe that is and what you come to through deliberation with your fellow congressional delegates, right? Um, that and there's this competing conception that is out there that a lot of others are pushing, which is a more what I call reflective style of representation, which is that, you know, okay, you're elected, but once you go to Congress, you're still obligated to, you know, communicate with your constituents to stay mm -hmm. in that dialogue, to try to ascertain what public opinion is, and then to reflect that in your decisions and the way that you vote in Congress. And the the right to instruct representatives really aligns more with that vision. It's this idea that representatives should be beholden to what their constituents, what the people want them to do, um, and they should follow those instructions. They should be kind of led by the people and by public opinion. 
And the fact that they, uh, in Congress, that they reject that idea to me speaks to, you know, a more prevalent view at the time that no representation works best through this more insulated model, that we don't actually want our representatives constantly going out trying to solicit public opinion and follow the uh, desires of their constituents. We want them to come and uh, that the, the common good is going to emerge from the deliberations that happen here among these elected officials. I remember back to my my experience, um, this this philosophical question came up even on a local municipal level where it's like, should we build a community center was a big issue. And it was like other council people wanted a, um, a referendum on it of the town. And mm-hmm. There was a um, ethic that went through people who were in local politics and state politics and things that was you never do that, you know. And and it and it the the the, the best way to to say it. I mean, the worst way to say it is yeah, because you want to be an autocrat, you know, and you want to do whatever you want once you get elected. The the better way to say it is that. Um, you you're the one that was elected to make those judgments mm-hmm. don't surrender it to to a group um to bring it to and you could go to burke with that i mean yeah. obviously the the judgment of the you know you owe you owe your constituency your judgment paraphrasing um you could go to a Brexit. I look at the Brexit issue, and and today in the UK there are people saying, "Why did we allow this? We've almost never allowed in the UK just a vote of things. They have a supreme parliament, so it's mm-hmm. the extreme representative democracy to where to where once you elect that group in, they're usually the party in power, absent a coalition type result." You're usually just giving the people four or five years to do what they want because they have a voting majority. Uh, and why would you ever, you know, turn it over to a group of people for one vote, one time, mm-hmm. 54% or whatever it was, you know, determines the policy of your country. You know, yeah. and those were the, that was the type of ethic among representatives that I even felt in my little experience. Um, and I, I only bring it up because I'm sure it's felt in even greater amounts by today's Congress people um, that, you know, you don't do that. Um, but then there are some people who were opposed to that and said, no, we have to listen to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that tension. You just never you never seem to get a, a, around that. Yeah, I don't know that we'll ever really settle that definitively. I think that, as you say, it's it's not even that, you know, different elected officials feel differently on this question. It's that, you know, as one elected official, you might also feel differently on this question at multiple points or on Mm -hmm, on different mm -hmm. issues. So, yeah, it's really complicated. And I I think my book tries to kind of recover, I guess, that ongoing tension that is contained within representative democracy, that we haven't really settled that question. I don't know that it ever really uh, can be settled. We're always kind of you know, vacillating between those two extremes and and trying to find the right point, uh, you know, to to achieve the right balance uh, between those two things. I like that in your book too. It's a it's a it might seem a minor point, but I find it very interesting. You talk about things like shorthand, like uh, learning shorthand, because they we we touched on it earlier that this idea of transparency. There's this mechanical problem of you know. 
these bodies talk and talk and talk. They're yeah. nothing but talkers. And now you have to record it all. This is an age before tape recording. And it's, you know, learning shorthand. And so you can record communications. And But it also brings up the idea that there's maybe two types of, when we say transparency, I, I think I know what the legislator is fearing. And it's rarely a complete record of everything that a person would listen to a whole meeting. It's one little part being taken out, scaring up a crowd for partisan act reasons, you know, an activity. Sure. And then that's the end. It's misunderstood in the context of the meeting. Most sure. of them would, I mean, absent a few things that you probably want in secret, but, and you, or you need to have in secret. For example, we had a, when I was in a town government, it was, you know, if we were being sued, well, that would be great if that was open to the public because the party that was suing us would just listen to everything we say and they'd right. have more. So we we had to keep certain things secret. Um, if we were in competition for a grant with another town. Well, that would be great if the town next sure. door could listen to our strategy. So sure. there's definitely some things that are defensible. But outside of that, you worried about um, just a small little factoid that might go out without the larger context. And I don't think most people fear a kind of C-spanning of their messages, but that a group will be able to get one little piece of information that they, you know, can use and, and misrepresent and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I note in the book, and I think this is for the first time, is in the late 18th century, you have politicians constantly writing about this sense of awareness that they're being watched um, and that they're sort of performing uh, before you know the eyes of the the public, the world, posterity. That there's this kind of like just this constant um, reflection on that awareness of mm -hmm. being watched. And you're right that it's. I think that that's often less like a concern about oh someone would be there and see everything, but more a concern about. Well, how might what I say here be, you know, possibly misconstrued somewhere else? And and this mm -hmm. is especially true, as you note, in an era before recording technology, where, you know, there reporters who are operating in Congress they are relying on these shorthand methods. Um, you know, newspapers have limited uh, column inches to print things. Um, oftentimes they are, these reporters are relying on imperfect, you know, memory or notes for, that they've taken in a meeting. And you have a lot of politicians complaining about uh, errors and misrepresentations of what they said that come out in the press. And, you know, sure, some of that might be them just kind of griping about it uh, or, you know, them misremembering what they might have said and maybe a reporter got it right. But in a lot of cases, I think there probably were a lot of inaccuracies and it's just kind mm -hmm. of down to the the challenges of, um, you know, recording uh, verbatim debate uh, before there's recording technology or typing technology. And it, it really is by hand. Um, so yeah, the question of inaccuracy or things being taken out of context, um, that's absolutely there. And I, I kind of try to point out how in the 18th century, when these representative institutions are, you know, really getting off the ground and these new ideas are being put into practice and taking hold, that that is really a big part of it is that, um, there is also because of the publicity and transparency of these bodies, 
that really changes the way that politicians um, might speak or act in an assembly because they do have this like awareness in the back of their minds that they, you know, whatever they say might appear somewhere <laughs> or they don't know how it's going to be taken. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, um, yeah, yeah, and we see it on social media where one item will be pulled out and exaggerated and, you know, and, and, um, I can I can understand where you want um, some degree of secrecy. Um, now you get to national security, you get to defense. The nation's founded with a war. So the first thing the Continental Congress is, in effect, doing is running a war. And mm-hmm. I doubt they want that public. And, you know what they're they don't want the British being able to obtain information on our strategy and how much we're funding and, and things like that so imagine it, it, it immediately has to start with some some secrecy yeah absolutely and and that is a really a crucial thing to remember is that yeah that's the primary business of the continental congress is running a war and uh trying to get foreign allies and and manage that so those are both arenas where secrecy is you know deemed very very important to actually uh doing those things and accomplishing those things and of course those kind of remain realms that get demarcated within government as realms of legitimate secrecy um for for various reasons so yeah that you're absolutely right that that is that, that is also going on at the time in addition to to what we discussed any other thing that you think is really important for listeners to know so I, I hope that the the book helps people think about these questions with some more historical context and in a bit more of a nuanced way because we've come to a a place i think where transparency is very valued as a core component of democracies and I, I don't think that that's wrong, and it does have mm-hmm. a lot of value. But um, the book tries to look at when and why that became the case, which dates back to the founding, the 18th century. And then it kind of tries to ask some questions about that and, um, you know, recover uh, an argument that was made in favor of having secrecy in, in government. Um, in a democracy and some of the potential benefits of that. Um, so it kind of tries to recover some of this nuance and, and tension. And I, I think history can help us do that. And, and that can, you know, better inform our, our own thinking about our politics today and, and these kind of debates in our society today. Uh, Dr. Carter, thanks for coming on. And thanks for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you so much. This was great. I want to thank you for listening. Dr. Carter's book is Democracy in Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. Our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have a Patreon. We uh, There's a lot of episodes at the website. Go ahead and check it out. Um, coming up next week is going to be look at the 1980 primaries on the Republican side, particularly Bush challenging Reagan in a very short-lived moment where he almost became the 1980 nominee and what it has to do with today. I want to thank you for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. 
Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.